everybody, welcome to week five of the course. Uh, by the time we're done with this week, we'll be halfway through the term, if you can believe it. It uh, definitely is going quickly as it always does. Here we are on day 45 of the self-quarantine count. I've had to change the style of uh, counting just a little bit so I can take up more board space. Um, as you can see, I have the diagram all uh, started or all completed. So I'm just gonna move through it today. Uh, our lecture this week and then you have a guest lecture on Wednesday, uh, and actually it's a documentary. I had to change it because one of the guest lectures fell through, um, and the documentary is The War Room, which was made about the uh, Clinton campaign in 1992, and we get to go behind the scenes uh, and see what it looks like to actually run a campaign, and particularly what it looks like to strategize and to figure out how to do uh, pretty much what we're talking about uh, today, or what I'll be talking about today. Uh, Today's lecture is about developing a strategy, and this is, to me, this is the most fun part. This is, this is the really interesting part of a campaign, and I think that's true for a lot of people. Uh, it's not necessarily the only skill that people bring to campaigns, and it's not necessarily the thing that some people find the most fun, but I find it the most fun, and, and uh, in the political world, in the campaign world, this is kind of, this is, this is the action, right? This is where you actually get to figure out what's the campaign gonna look like and how are we going to do this thing? How are we gonna get the most votes? Um, I put in the box the, what it really is. We're operationalizing the voice of the campaign at this stage. Operationalizing means taking some kind of vague concept or uh, abstraction and turning it into something that you can put onto the ground. Um, and in this case, not just onto the ground, into the air, onto the internet, all of the different places, but uh, operationalizing means turning a concept into essentially turning it into reality. Uh, here's the messaging and communication process that uh, developing a strategy is sort of the, the, the centerpiece of or the, or the second stage. So I just want to go through this really quickly before describing what goes on in this particular stage. Um, this is not the only way to go about a campaign. I should note that. Uh, and in your readings, you, you, you may be sensing uh, that there's, uh, you know, other people have different, slightly different versions of the process than what I'm presenting to you here. And that's intended. I want you to have different views, uh, uh, different takes on what it is to run a campaign. Uh, for me, this is the ideal approach. And I think it's the one that's kind of, it's the sort of paradigmatic approach that campaigns take. But it, there is also a sense in which it's a luxury to be able to do it this way. Uh, you have to have the time to be able to put in before you're actually communicating, right? This is the ultimate goal, is the communicating. Before you actually have time, uh, or before you actually get communicating, it would be great to have the time and the space to do both of these stages in sort of uh, the most luxurious, full way. That's not always reality. Uh, in, in reality, you might not be able to even spend time finding the voice, but you, have to, you do have to spend some time, right? Uh, and there are two different kinds of finding the voice. I'm just going to you know, review what came from last week's uh, class. Um, if you have a candidate or a ballot measure, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be different. If you're finding the voice of a candidate campaign, uh, and, and today, I'm, I'm, again, for most of these lectures, kind of putting you in the position of either the campaign manager or somebody who's, who's uh, an important higher, higher up in, in the campaign. Um, so that you can see what it takes to run or to be, in, uh, to be part of the team that's running a campaign. Part of what finding the voice means is actually talking to the candidate and getting connected to the candidate. It's sometimes the case that the campaign manager knows the candidate uh, and understands who they are and they maybe even have a prior relationship, but that's not always the case. And in fact, it's, it's not often the case. 
this is an important stage of building the relationship and actually having this discussion. I don't think that I maybe emphasized that enough in last week's lecture, that when you have a candidate, a big part of what you're doing is having a discussion with them, guided uh, by the concepts that I uh, talked about last week, uh, to find out like what is the voice, because the candidate is the face of the campaign, and the face is gonna be the voice, the conduit for the voice also, but finding the voice is actually uh, a collaborative effort. And uh, if it's a ballot measure, uh, when there, there's no candidate, but uh, part of that collaborative effort is the often very long process of building a coalition and coming to consensus on what the voice of the campaign is. In a ballot measure campaign, that actually can take the longest, right? You, you, you really do need to make sure there's time for that. Uh, it's not necessarily a luxury you can avoid. Um, it's, it, it is very difficult to get, a cam, uh, to get a ballot measure onto the ballot and then across the finish line with, with a yes win if you haven't done that kind of hard, often long back uh, round work of forming a coalition. And the coalition, as I indicated last time, will collectively find that voice, and that can actually be a very challenging thing. Working one-on-one -on -one even with a candidate can be a very challenging thing to find the voice, though it's, it, since it's just two people instead of a, a group with different perspectives as a ballot measure coalition will be, it's actually uh, less challenging. Though, of course, the voice that the candidate wants might not necessarily be the voice that the campaign manager thinks is the, is the proper voice. Um, but the, you really do, at, ideally at best, need a bunch of time for a ballot measure to find the voice of the campaign. With a candidate, you don't necessarily need a ton of time to find that voice, but what you do need, or want, and anyway, ideally, is enough time to do that and then have a, a, a good chunk of time to develop the strategy before you actually have to begin communicating. Now, what the timeline of communicating is, and this is, this is going to be the subject of next week's class, so I'll, I'll, I'll gesture to some of these things, but next week we're going to be looking at uh, forms of communication. Uh, public outreach, endorsements, and other ways to reach uh, uh, potential voters, potential donors, all of the things. This is basically, this is the campaigning part. This is where you're actively campaigning. What the timeline on this is really depends on what the race is. You know, obviously if you're running for president, the timeline for this is two years out and two and a half years out and even four years out in terms of finding the voice and developing a strategy. But the, the active, active campaigning is about a year and a half to upwards of two years to, to campaign for president. Uh, I really hope that someday one of you guys gets to run a presidential campaign. That would be insane, and I would. And of course, you better tell me about it. Of course, I'll know. I'll know you're in the news, and I'll be bragging to everybody that they were once in my class. But uh, other offices, depending on what the office is and what the constituency is and what the sort of standard campaigning season is, will have a longer or shorter campaigning communicating season. Um, for uh, a local office like uh, city council. Uh, again, it depends on how big the city is. The bigger it is, the bigger the constituency, the longer time frame you're going to want to have. But one of the things about down-ballot races, and this is where most of you will begin your careers uh, in, in terms of even just volunteering, but much less running a campaign, is down-ballot races. Uh, down-ballot races are, as I've indicated, they're challenging because a big part of all you, what you're doing is actually getting people to just even fill that bubble in, to get all the way down there and to know that they want to vote for that particular race. Uh, the challenge of that is, is that you also don't really have a big campaigning window in which to do that because the earlier you get started, the more likely that the memory and the message is to get diluted by the time election day comes. Um, 
So you can, you know, if you're running for governor, you can start reaching out to voters months in advance, uh, and you can start advertising on television, and you can start sending out emails, and doing all that stuff, and doing door knocking well before, uh, because those are going to be names that's close to the top of the ballot, uh, or actually at the top of the ballot in a lot of elections when there's not a presidential election happening, and so you can, you can, you actually get a longer time frame for local offices. There, you don't really want to start. In some cases, you know, the campaigning season is really like three, four weeks. Could be five, six weeks. Now, there is communication that goes on that's not just reaching voters. There's endorsement interviews, there's fundraising, and I'll talk about all that stuff next week. So the communication phase is not necessarily homogenous. It's not just like, okay, three weeks before election day, we start communicating. Three weeks before election day might be when you start directly communicating with voters or most actively directly communicating with voters. I'll talk about that when we get to forming your game plan, um, because the game plan is how you then take your strategy and operationalize your strategy into an actual campaign. Right? So uh, today we're going to focus on the middle stage, the most crucial and I think the most fun stage. All of this is aimed at getting to the point where when you begin communicating, you're going to be doing so effectively, cohesively, and also that you're going to be able to do the very, this is a very rapid portion of the campaign. This is, even if you have several months where you're actually actively doing this, that's going to be a very busy time. And uh, you're not going to have time to do this, a lot of developing your strategy while this is happening. If you have to do a lot of strategy developing while you're actually actively campaigning, sending the candidate to, to, to rallies and house parties and fundraisers and endorsement meetings uh, and uh, um, inter interacting with interest groups, uh, then you're really not going to be able to have a ton of time to do the good quality strategizing and game planning that is necessary. So again, this is why you want to give yourself or why ideally you have a, a long period to do this. Notice there are a couple of backwards arrows, and I just want to point out that this is, in fact, while I've portrayed it as a kind of a linear process, and it, you know, that's, that is at base what it is, it's a linear process, um, <clears throat> there are some iterations where you may have to move backwards, right? So that when you're developing your strategy, and I'll talk about this when I get into uh, the second sidebar here, you may actually need to revisit what the voice of the campaign is. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't mean it was wasted time thinking about what the voice of the campaign is. You don't skip ahead to developing a strategy just because you're not 100% sure that the voice of the campaign is going to be the right voice. Um, but uh, you, you should always be open to going back and uh, revisiting either of the earlier stages if necessary. Um, in general, there's really not a whole lot to revisit. Uh, you might be tempted to think, well, that we screwed up the voice, but what you're probably really doing is needing to just hone the message a little more tightly. For example, if you're, if you're a challenger, you're running a change campaign, right? You can revisit the, that notion and be like, are we really running a change, change campaign? Shouldn't we be running a character-based campaign after what we found out? But really, you're going to be running a character-based version of the change campaign. Uh, if, you're, if you're running an incumbent, you, you're running with the brand. And part of honing your message might be, well, we know we need to take the brand in a slightly different direction than it exists. Uh, but really, you're, you're not going to be revisiting. It's mostly if you're in, the, if you're in an open seat situation and you think that you're going to run an issue-based campaign, and as you develop a strategy based on that concept and you begin get, gathering information and, and planning it and testing, you might find that, oh, no, an, an issue-based campaign is not going to work, uh, either because the issues that are 
strong for my candidate are not the issues that are uh, important right now, or people don't aren't looking at an issue-based campaign. There's a different kind of electoral landscape out there. Uh, so it's really only in that kind of situation that you're going to revisit the voice of the campaign. Uh, another place where you might want to revisit the voice of the campaign is if you're on the no side of a ballot measure, which is actually, as I indicated last time, kind of the easiest one. But the no is you're reacting against the yes. Uh, and so really, you're, you know, you're coming up with arguments why the people should reach no. And if as you begin to develop your strategy or even begin to communicate, you, you find that it's not resonating, then that's a time when, unfortunately, you know, maybe you should have done a better job in, in, in the case of coming up with your, the voice of your no campaign. But unfortunately, you may need to go all the way back there. Now, the other arrow is that after you've developed your strategy, if you've gone through all these steps, you've got a game plan and you're actually implementing the game plan, you're out there campaigning, it's important to not just put your head down and go for it. Uh, it's important to be able to evaluate your successes and failures uh, so that you can adjust the strategy moving forward. Now, the more work you do here, the less adjustment you should have to make, ideally. But things happen. You don't know uh, all the things that are going to happen in the midst of a campaign. Um, and you also, even when you do good testing and you hone the message, you don't necessarily know until it's out there in the world if things are going to resonate or if things are going to flop. Um, if you've done your work really well and you actually have good polling and good focus groups and you have good paid professionals behind you, there's a smaller chance that it's going to flop. Um, but it's still possible. And also, of course, you have no idea what's coming during the however many weeks of the campaign you have. I mean, no, nobody thought that there was going to be a pandemic lockdown for the 2020, uh, at least for the spring elections. And so when that came down, obviously this is an example of an exogenous factor that completely screws up the game plan. Um, <clears throat> however, even in this situation, the better your game plan is, the, the more honed your message is, you have to go back and figure out, okay, how are we going to get to the various groups of voters and supporters that we were targeting before in some face-to-face -face ways. But even there, it's like responding to this uh, sort of surprise development, the more you've done here, particularly with forming a game plan, uh, the, the easier it's gonna be to make those adjustments. But it's always important to evaluate for successes and failures. And uh, you know, for a long campaign, this is actually, this, this will be an ongoing iterated process. And I think that one of the things you'll see in the war room is that part of what they're doing is they are essentially developing the strategy as they're communicating and then they're, re they're changing the strategy or updating it and then changing the communication style. And with a candidate like Bill Clinton, you know, especially early on when uh, there, were, there were some scandals involved in the primaries, it was really important uh, to be able to have that deftness and to know that we have a great game plan, but you don't just put your head down. Um, I think the, the analogy to, to a football game is really useful here. Like, you spend a lot of time, and this is successful NFL teams. Uh, I really hope that I'm not losing too many of you on the football uh, metaphor. Uh, <clears throat> I'm deeply a football fan, and I, and I love every aspect of it, but uh, successful NFL teams have coaching staffs that prepare a specific game plan for the specific opponent, and it is tailored to everything they know about that team in as real time as possible, right? Um, it's not just, okay, we looked at what the team looks like in, in week one, well, now it's week eight, and we're gonna keep, you know, we're gonna figure out what, uh, we're gonna keep going with that. You wanna ideally update your game plan after week seven, watching the film and, and seeing who's injured and what the strengths and weaknesses are and what kinds of uh, approaches your defense and offense wants to take. You come into the game 
start the game with a game plan. And in fact, most NFL teams have their first one or two drives scripted uh, in terms of the offense because they're going to they, they, you know, essentially come out and, and not just be like, well, I wonder what we're going to do for the first play. Like, you ought to know what the first play is going to be. Um, unless there's some kind of surprise, like the kickoff is run back 70 yards and you're now on the opponent's 20-yard line uh, instead of at your own 25-yard line where you expect to be, maybe then you, you adapt. But even then, you have a game plan. But it's crucial, and this is what successful coaching staffs on NFL teams do, it's crucial to be paying attention to that game plan and revising that as you go. And in fact, halftime adjustments are a big part of NFL success. So like, halftime gives a specific break uh, that you won't necessarily have in a political campaign. You don't get like, okay, timeout, halftime, we all get to figure it out. Halftime is the time where uh, successful teams and, and, and sharp coaching staffs will essentially be like, here's what we learned in the first half. And uh, the second half of an NFL football game is often quite different than the first one because both teams have made adjustments to what they saw and based on, well, okay, we tried our game plan and here were things that were working. The running game was just not working. And uh, that means that we have to really uh, you know, adjust and, and do more passing in the second half. Where the running game is working great, so we're gonna stick with that. Defensively, however, uh, we're not getting to the quarterback enough, so we need to put more pressure on the quarterback. Whatever, whatever adjustments seem to be, need to be made. A campaign, hopefully you don't have to make too many adjustments, but you are going to have to make adjustments. Even in a sort of non-disruptive campaign season where there's not some kind of huge event, there's going to be news cycles that are going to impact the way that people see politics, even if it's not a huge thing, like, you know, like a school shooting or some kind of uh, international crisis or some kind of domestic crisis is going to impact the way that people are thinking about politics. Uh, in the next couple weeks between this moment and the election. Uh, and those can be quite disruptive and obviously you need to be ready to deal with that kind of thing uh, as well. But it, in general, uh, you, you know, really, I, you can plan an awful lot of what your campaign looks like. The main sort of iterating you need to do is, okay, what in the normal course of campaigning is and isn't working? Okay, we wrote a, what we thought was an amazing stump speech you send the candidate out there, uh, it's been practiced, and the tone is just right, what everybody thinks, and the audience is relatively unmoved. Um, and so you're thinking, okay, I guess all of the planning we did to hone this message, to create this, what we thought was the right stump speech, it felt kind of flat. Um, and that can happen. You know, it's, it, even, even the most brilliant writers produce duds of books sometimes. So you might think, well, you can never, you've, you had three bestsellers in a row, your next book's gonna be brilliant. And people read it and like, yeah, that's, I like the old stuff better. The same thing can happen with the campaign. You're, you're, you're producing uh, a message for an audience that you, that you don't necessarily, even with all the best research and planning and testing, you can't exactly know what it's gonna be like uh, until, you, until you get out there. So this evaluating for successes and failures. What are we doing well? What are we doing poorly? Uh, how can we change the things that we're doing poorly to make them better? This is, the, this is then the hustling part of a campaign. The communication stage is gonna be hustling no matter what because you're going to be trying to maximize the number of 24-hour periods that you have. And each, the candidate only has a certain number of hours to do all this communicating and the staff only has a certain number of labor hours to do all the work uh, around a campaign. So this is gonna be the hustle no matter what. And so ideally, you're not adding to that hustle with too much redeveloping of your strategy. But being fleet in your ability to do that, being flexible enough mentally to know that, oh, okay, well, we can't just put our head down and keep sticking with the same dud of a stump speech just because we don't have time to fix it, right? You, you have to actually make time to fix it.
And this is where the excitement comes in. This is where the adrenaline rush, and this is where uh, the sort of really, what, when people get addicted to campaigning, they maybe really love this part. This part is actually really fun and, and, and very uh, creatively satisfying, but this is the part that's really addicting. Okay, enough gesturing ahead at communicating to next week's lecture. Let me now uh, um, break down the developing strategy into the stages and talk about what each of these stages is and what it involves. So this is the process. Notice I have two processes. Overall communication, messaging communication process, developing a strategy is broken down here. The first thing you want to do is your initial polling and research. Um, you may not have a budget to actually hire a pollster, so you can't do polling. It would be great to have any ability to do any kind of polling initially because there are certain questions that before we can move through the rest of this process to develop an effective game plan, um, just need to be answered. And here, here are the basic questions that you want to answer at this stage. Who's out there? Right? Remember, what you're doing is you are seeking votes, and your job is to get the most votes. If it's a ballot measure, you need 50% plus one on the yes side uh, or on the no side. If it's a two-candidate race, you need 50% plus one. If it's a three-candidate race, you need the most votes. Um, but who's out there? Like, you're, you're seeking votes. If you don't know who the, these people are who are, one, able to vote, too likely to vote, then you're not going to be able to develop an effective strategy. Where are they? Right? This is where it would be really useful. Where are they? And this is both physically and virtually. Right? Where do they live? What are their addresses? Uh, what are their phone numbers? Uh, what are their email addresses? Uh, but also, where do their eyes go? What radio stations do they listen to? What uh, newspapers do they read? What television shows do they watch? Uh, what forms of social media are they following most? And uh, that's, that's a where are they uh, in both physical and virtual space. Uh, now, uh, for a lot of campaigns, especially ones you're going to be working on early on, I've used the example uh, in the past of you know, you're, you're running a campaign for somebody who's running for city council in Gresham or city council in Vancouver. You're probably not going to have raised enough money in one of these races to be able to do a ton of polling that's going to give you really good information. One of the things about this, this is why I say initial polling and research. Research is available, there's a kind of a sweat equity side to research. Research is available even if you don't have the money to do good polling. Um, because research means, one, looking at public records, but two, also connecting with people who have this kind of information. This is where parties are actually really useful uh, um, support systems for candidates. What parties do for partisan races is they provide a lot of the initial research. Like They know where the people are. They know where the, where the doors are to be knocked. They know what the phone numbers are. They have email lists. They have uh, likely voter databases or they have access to it. Uh, this is one of the things that parties can provide. And, and part of what you need to be able to do in a campaign is if you can't do your own initial polling, you have to have in place the other resources, the non-monetary resources, the labor hours of people to do the sweat equity, and the connections. And it may not just be a party. It may be um, uh, interest groups, right? If you can, early on, if you can get uh, a, 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 an interest group interested in your campaign enough to be like, hey, we're going to not just endorse you and donate some money to your campaign, but we're going to share information with you as well. We're going we're gonna to make connections. We'll tell you where voters are. In fact, we'll, we'll, we'll go there for you, right? Uh, 
you also need to know what do voters care about and what does the electoral environment look like. And this, obviously, if you can poll, what do voters care about, this is going to have to be on your polling. And, and good pollsters are going to make sure they include this kind of information uh, or these kinds of questions because it's guesswork to think, to answer the question, what do voters care about? If you can't ask them, if you can't do polling, this is where research and where sort of political savvy can substitute for money, right? Um, this is where you sit down and you say, okay, what are the big stories? What are most of the headlines? Uh, what is being talked about in, among uh, the people who are eligible to and likely to vote in this particular election? Um, that's, that's what part of your research is. You can find out what people care about and what the electoral environment looks like without doing polling. Now, that said, polling is the superior method of answering those questions. Um, and then also really the only way to answer the final question, which is, you would love to know this, but you, you could live without it if necessary, though it's, it's, it's a handicap. What's the likely level of support for your campaign, right? At this point, let's say that you have an initial polling that shows that you have 50% support and there are two other people running uh, uh, against you, so you're leading by you know, 15% from your, your, your closest uh, competitor. What of those people are really just locked in? And which of those people are soft support? Um, and uh, why is it soft support? What do they care about that maybe leans them in your direction, but you have to make sure you solidify that? Um, knowing what percentage of likely voters you have who, if the election were held today, would vote for you is fantastic. But knowing the, so the strength of their support, how solid they are, how, how strong or soft is your support, and what is the, where are the soft spots, right? What, what makes some people, at this point, lean in your direction, but not necessarily you know, fully convinced or fully signed on. You also want to know uh, who are the people who don't have a preference yet, the, un the, the undecideds, and what do they look like? Uh, now, remember, there are two sides. This goes all the way back to, I think, week one, possibly week two. There are two sides to a successful campaign. One is turnout and one is persuasion. Um, all of our communication is going to be aimed at both of those, or I shouldn't say all of it. Our communication strategy, we're always going to be aimed at both of those. Different pieces of the game plan will be aimed at one direction or the other. But initial polling will tell us, like, okay, we have a lot of support, but we just need to make sure that we get those people to vote. That will change your entire process. If you find out that what you have is you have a high level of solid support, but you're a way down ballot race, and so what, what you're task now is to do is to make sure you translate that support into actual votes. Uh, it is kind of, I would say, a classic dangerous mistake to assume that support equals uh, victory. That you have, you're polling really well, you have a polling lead, and then how did you lose the race? How did, it, how did this happen? This is where a lot of head scratching goes on afterwards, like, but the polls showed that we were doing great. Well, what you didn't do was you didn't turn, either the polls were off, which is possible, or the polls were right, but what you didn't do was you didn't get the people who were supporting you to actually cast ballots. It's, in, in an election, the only thing that matters is the ballots. The polls don't matter at all. Even when they're 100% accurate, even when they're as accurate as possible, and polling has gotten really good, polling has gotten very accurate, um, it's, uh, the failure is not on the pollster's part. 
the failures on the part of campaigns to take that support and translate it into actual votes. So if you, in your initial uh, polling, if you, if you don't find out uh, what the kind of support is and what the level of support is, and if you don't find out what kind of race you're running, are you running a turnout race? Are you running a persuasion race? Or are you running both of those races? Um, the a turnout race is actually quite different, right? In a turnout race, your, your, your overall strategy is going to be to make sure that your people are aware of who you are, aware that there's a, a bubble to fill in down there that low in the ballot, um, and that they actually go uh, and vote in, in, in the big numbers. So it's a ground game type thing. In a persuasion race, it's gonna be an entirely different thing. You're going, you're going to actually have to get out there and convince people who are either undecided or who are, are leaning in the direction of the other one, you wanna pull away their soft support. Now it's useful also, of course, to know uh, all of the stuff, not just about your, your own candidate, but about your, uh, the opponent's candidates, uh, the, the opposing candidates as well, because if they have solid support, let's say, let's say one of your opponents has a, is polling at 30% and it's solid 30%, like none of those people are persuadable. So what you need to do is you need to get the undecideds um, and you need, to keep, you need to keep the opponent from pulling those, from pulling those undecideds, uh, from winning the persuasion battle. If your opponent has 50% support, but half of that is soft support, those people are leaning in that direction, but they are persuadable, perhaps not as easily persuadable as an undecided voter, uh, but they definitely you know, are, are just at this moment favoring that candidate, but not necessarily going, going to do it uh, for sure, uh, then that's also, you need to know that. So who's out there? Where are they? What do they care about? What does the electoral environment look like? And uh, what's your likely level of support and what kind of support uh, is that these are all things that you need to know, need to do now again if you have the money to do polling initial polling is really kind of the most important polling like if you only if you have a budget to do some polling and you don't know if you're going to be able to raise more money along the way to be able to do polling down the line because there there is there there are roles for especially when we're evaluating <clears throat> it would be great to be able to do polls down the line but if you are going to invest in polling and you have to make tough choices, uh, this is the best place to put it. Because if you don't invest in initial polling and you come up and you sort of do some research, do whatever you can, but you're mostly planning blindly um, <clears throat> and then you don't have the money to, to do focus grouping and, and then you kind of form your game plan and you begin communicating and now you have money to poll and you poll and it shows that you're doing poorly, well, probably the reason why you're doing poorly is because you went into the communication phase with a kind of starting off blind. So uh, with scarce resources, and every campaign uh, combats scarce resources, even presidential campaigns that raise $300 million, they, they, they face scarcity because there's always more you would want to send, spend it on. Absolutely, at any lower level campaign, uh, state legislature, city council, uh, county commissioner, um, even statewide races like state treasurer and secretary of state governor, they all face uh, scarcity. The, a, a really good place to put any money that you might be able to have on polling uh, research is right here at the front. Because the questions that you ask here and, uh, are crucial to this entire process. We're not just asking these out of casual curiosity. Like, I wonder what the electoral environment is like. I wonder what issue the voters care about or what do voters care about. I, I said issue, but it could be that they care about character or they could be that they care about experience. You would like to know that, right? It would, it would be great if you were running a campaign for Gresham City Council and 
you found out that what most voters who are likely to vote that far down the ballot care about is experienced city councilors. Um, they want people who are going to who have who have a lot of experience doing you know uh, either government experience or business experience. It would be really nice to know what kind of experience they want. But let's say that you found out that voters care most about experience. They don't necessarily care about issues in this particular cycle and. Uh, character is kind of secondary to experience because the voters feel like character follows uh, uh, with experience, that if you have the right kind of experience, then you, then you, then you probably have the right character. If you know that, that's, that is going to, de to determine and influence all the rest of this stuff. If you just think, you're like, oh yeah, you know, homelessness and uh, parking and uh, sort of uh, crappy parks, the, these are the issues that voters care about. And maybe you think that's what voters care about because that's what bugs you, that's what bugs your candidate, right? When you, when you had the conversation about finding the voice for the candidate, the candidate was like, this is, the reason I'm running is because homeless people are uh, ruining our town and uh, we have crappy parks and you can't park anywhere. It's, it's just, it's, it's insane. So I want to I wanna be part of the solution to these problems. If you don't have the ability to find out what voters actually care about, you're going to base the rest of your work on thinking that that's what your campaign should care about. And it's not going to be until you start communicating and begin to realize that, oh no, as we evaluate our communications for success and failure, that we're not getting traction with people. Um, then, and, and then maybe you find out that you go to uh, a meet and greet with voters and you start talking about your plan for cleaning up the parks and how uh, you know, city, city council uh, ordinances can really change what the parking situation looks like, and people are not interested and they're not listening and then when they start to ask questions they're asking like well what have you done what's your experience what how you know give us examples of when you've solved problems before if you're not ready for that then your candidate is going to be flat-footed in response and maybe your candidate's actually really really good at kind of uh, improvising in that way but improvisation is not a favorite word in political campaigning. It's, some people can do it successfully, but it's a very rare skill. And even if you're a good improviser, even if you're good at spontaneous uh, speaking, you may not be spontaneously saying the things that are going to resonate with people in front of you. And that's very rare, is being able to know to how to connect, not just how to, oh, well, somebody's asking a question I wasn't prepared for, I can answer that question, but how to answer that question in a way that connects you with that voter instead of drives them away. That's essential. So initial polling, Best place to put scarce polling uh, dollars. Um, research is, even if you have polling, you're going to want to know, for example, what are the big issues? What are the most headlines? What is, what is the news cycle right now looking like? What does it seem like from, from, you can't predict the future, of course, but from this point forward, what does it look like this campaign is going to be about? Right now, and here's here's a great example of how things can just totally change. There was no doubt that this year's mayoral campaign and city council campaigns in Portland that homelessness was going to be a crucial issue. Um, everybody knew that it's it, it is becoming a more visible uh, situation in Portland. There's a lot of different groups want solutions, and of course, there's a lot of conflicting ideas about what those solutions will be. But in a major way. This election was going to be about homelessness and connected to that about sustainable development of a rapidly growing city. Uh, that is no longer the case. 
with coronavirus. This, uh, and while those issues, of course, are not completely unimportant, what now, it, 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 you know, again, this is, I, I don't really know this because I haven't done polling, but my sense is that what really does matter to voters is uh, like steady progressive or steady leadership, uh, unity, hope, uh, confidence, uh, looking at people and saying, well, do you, can you, do you know what you're doing? Can you get the job done? Competence and government uh, and, and sort of quality governance is going to enter this election or is entering this election in all across the country in ways that it wasn't necessarily before. So th this is where you have to be prepared for exogenous factors to change the entire situation. But it doesn't mean that this, just because surprises can happen doesn't mean that this initial research isn't super important. Um, what do you do with that? Well, you take this kind of initial analysis of what is the electoral landscape look like? <clears throat> and how do, is it a turnout election? Is it an issues election? Is it a character election? Is, are, is there a big percentage of persuadables? Do I, my, does my candidate have soft support? Does my candidate have almost no support at all and only because they have zero name recognition, right? It would be great to know that uh, you know, your candidate is doing poorly because of name recognition. Uh, one of the things that comes out in the, in the Tom Hughes uh, guest lecture interview, which I think is scheduled for next week or maybe the week after that, um, when he ran for uh, Metro Council President, which is a huge office to run for, there's, about a, uh, there's over a million constituents and uh, the election had about uh, over 500,000 votes cast. That's a huge audience to, to reach. Uh, when he did his initial polling, None of the candidates had any kind of name recognition. When they polled based on name, they all were in single digits because it's a relatively rare and weird office and, and the people running for it were kind of specialized folks and no one knew who they were. So his uh, campaign manager did initial polling on generic descriptions, took it, wrote as neutral and objective a generic description of each of the candidates possible and asked the uh, survey, survey respondents would you vote for, would you be most likely to vote for this candidate, this candidate, or this candidate? And when uh, he found that out, when they did that polling, they found out that, hit, that Tom's generic description polled at something like 60%. So he was far and away winning, but he had no name recognition. Uh, and none of them had name recognition. So what that told him, and it actually, in this particular case, I'm, you know, I'm giving away only a portion of what the guest lecture is, and Tom says it better than I do, uh, but what that told them was, well, we need to run on the generic description. And what we need to do is we just need to connect the name with this generic description. So that initial polling, uh, and he put a, you know, a big part of the money he had initially into that polling, very savvy move, uh, told them basically what the campaign was, had to look like, and that followed through all the way in a game plan that carried him through the primary and the general election uh, and to victory. So it was, it was the, you know, it was really high quality stuff. And it was lucky too, there was a certain sense in which if your initial polling tells you something that clearly points you in the direction of how to go down the rest of this process, there's luck to that, right? It doesn't always do that. It, it, the initial polling research may raise more questions than it provides answers. But it definitely is an important set of questions to at least know what the answers to them are, the answers to those questions. What does the landscape look like? What do voters care about? Who are they? Where are they? All of this information is going to be extremely useful data. Brainstorming and drafting. This is where, this is the creativity part, and this is actually, I think, one of the really fun parts. But that's, I, you know, I, I'm a fiction writer as well as a college professor, and I love thinking about how do, you, how do you come up with ways to present ideas in a palatable, interesting, entertaining, compelling kind of way. That's what's going on here. Um, 
what you do in a campaign is you don't write a book, you don't write a novel, you don't write a speech, you don't, you don't produce the campaign message. What you do is you come up with a couple of different approaches to the message um, that draw on the voice, right? That, that basically combine what, you, what, the, what you've determined the voice is going to be with what the initial polling uh, shows us and come up with a couple of different approaches that you think might address what the initial polling and research has shown you. This is definitely drafting and it's important when you, you know, like when you, when you draft a paper for college, you write one paper, you don't write three different papers, right? But you write one paper, but you should always then have an open mind that when you get done with it and you look back at it and you compare it to the prompt that like, oh, that didn't really, it doesn't really do the thing I have to do. You have to be willing to redraft. Uh, in a campaign, you always have to be willing to redraft at all times, but part of what you want to be doing here is you want to be producing multiple drafts. Uh, and again, at the draft level. The first draft you write of a paper shouldn't be anywhere near the paper that you turn in. Um, you notice that I'm kind of slipping in a little bit of, of uh, 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 college student advice in here. It's, it's, it's relevant. But your first draft, you should write it quickly because it's not going to be anything close to your first paper. Students, uh, I've noticed in the past, who write like a really detailed first draft and then they put a ton of work into it, they're more likely to then just edit that lightly and turn it in and that's not necessarily the most effective way to write a paper. It's definitely not the most effective way to run a campaign. At this stage, you still want to be working with just general themes, general messages, and multiple approaches to it. Now, hopefully you have an idea based on your initial polling who it is that you're trying to speak to, right? For example, if you, re if you know that the, there's a large chunk of undecided voters and a lot of those undecided voters are women and the largest group of those women are college-educated women, right? And I have to say, I picked this example because college-educated women are kind of the holy grail of, of, of 21st century politics. Uh, but let's just say that, that your initial polling and research shows you that this is the group you have to reach. You're in a persuasion race and you're still going to do stuff to turn out the people who are going to vote for you. Definitely, it's never not a turnout race, but you're primarily in a persuasion race. And the biggest group of undecideds are college-educated women. And that tells you, that gives you an idea. And now what your job is, and it would be an excellent if you had some college-educated women who are from around there on your uh, staff to provide that perspective. But even, even uh, you know, let's say you have a room full of six people who are brainstorming and coming up with, with say, two or three different uh, overall messaging approaches, which is what you should be shooting for here at this stage, at least two, more like three or four uh, different tacks. It would be really helpful, but even still, those college-educated women, they don't know what speaks to the college-educated women out there. One of the reasons why you're doing multiple drafts instead of a single draft and why you're brainstorming instead of trying to, uh, trying to drill down, right? Brainstorming and drilling down are two different things. Honing the message is where we're going to drill down um, is because you just, even with really good high-quality initial polling, you just don't know exactly what is going to speak to those people. You can't do initial polling that's going to give you the answer what speaks to the people I need to speak to because you don't even yet know who those people are. You can't write questions for a questionnaire. You don't want to write a hundred uh, question questionnaire for your initial polling for a, you know, even a big city, city council race or mayoral race because you're, just, you're going to get fewer respondents who are going to get all the way down in a survey where they answer all these questions. You, you can't be asking about all these kinds of different issues and uh, ideas that you might want to know about. 
So when you're drafting multiple ideas, okay, what speaks to college-educated women? Well, okay, so there's women in that. What do you guys, what do you care about, right? And uh, we care about student debt, we care about our kids, we care about quality of life, we care about uh, economic stability for the future. Great, okay, but you still don't know like which one of those is the primary concern. Um, do you, like, are college-educated women issue-oriented, or are they character-oriented, or are they experience-oriented? Um, if, if you're a challenger, and this is therefore your voice of your campaign is a change, what is the dissatisfactions that college-educated women either feel and know they feel, like, I don't like this thing, or that uh, could be brought out in them that they don't necessarily articulately know at this point is something that they care about, something that they want to be changed? Because a change election is always going to be about pointing out that there's a problem and that your candidate or ballot measure represents the positive change away from that problem. Um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it is really, that carries through to, it's a stupid cliche and I hate it uh, in a lot of ways, but in politics it kind of is true, especially if you're running a challenger. Um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you have to overcome that, uh, that problem. And what you need to do then is you need to find out in what way something might be broken. Uh, so brainstorming and drafting multiple drafts, producing a few different versions of the messages, and then, and then what you do before you go into the focus group and testing area um, is you then produce drafts of different messaging that would be used in your game plan and that if uh, the winner essentially will get to go to the honing the message stage. Um, so here's the ideal process. Um, and again, it doesn't always work out this way that you have the financial uh, resources for this or even the time. But the ideal process is this. You do initial polling. It tells you that you have a big chunk of uh, persuadable voters. A large portion of them are college-educated women. And you want to know, of course, who also who the, who the other persuadable groups are. Um, you don't just want to say, well, we're only going to focus on those. We want to know, like, that's the biggest group, but what's the second biggest group? Who can we ignore, but who should we at least take into account? And then you produce uh, three different versions, ideally, three different versions of the message that you think is going to resonate with this group of people that fits the voice of the campaign, right? So the voice of the campaign is always back there to kind of focus it, right? If, if, you're, if you're running for an open seat and uh, you thought you were running an issue campaign and then your polling tells you that people care more about uh, experience, that's when you revisit and your voice. And you can do that pretty quickly and be like, okay, hey, our polling tells us that city council voters in Gresham care about experience way more than they care about the issue. So you don't need to be talking about parks and parking and the homeless. You need to be talking about who you are and what you've done. Okay, great. Let's say that that's the case. And let's say that, that your polling shows you that... Uh, it's college-educated women that are going to decide this election in the Gresham City Council race. Uh, how do you tell college-educated women that you have the right experience to do the job, to be on the city council? Uh, that you how do you communicate what's true of your candidate? Like, you can't make stuff up. I mean, you can make stuff up. That's, there's, no, there's no law against lying. Uh, though, uh, you want to take what's really true about your candidate, and you want to... Uh, uh, present it in a way that will speak to those people. Well, how do we know, right? We don't know. So you come up with three different versions of the experience ad. And it doesn't have to be a television spot. I, if, if you're not going to have money to run television ads, then don't spend money now focus grouping television ads. Uh, 
probably you're going to know already and your campaign manager ought to know like, okay, given our financial resources presently and our likely financial resources, we're going to be able to do uh, a decent amount of radio and Facebook ads uh, and we might even be able to buy some, you know, some banner ads in newspapers in the Oregonian or whatever the local paper is. Uh, it's primarily going to be print and voice. So what you do is you produce uh, a uh, three different versions of the essentially let's let, let's just say the the thirty second radio spot on our candidate with the right experience for the job, and you come up with three different taglines, and you come up with three different essentially narrative approaches, and they should be different enough, they should be differentiated enough that when you find that one of them really resonates with the people in the focus group, um, that it's different enough from the other two that you know which direction to go in, right? Um, you do, so it's like, okay, we found out that uh, it's college-educated women and that experience is what they care about, and the next uh, most important group of voters after college-educated women um, are, uh, are um, homeowners in the upper, uh, above the median uh, of uh, housing prices in Gresham. Right. They're, they're the most persuadable group too, they, and they're a high-intensity voter group. Um, so they're another group. Most of those have their ma mind made up, but, some, but, but many of them remain persuadable. So we want to talk to them as well. What experience message, right? Um, and of course, this is where your candidate is the, a constraint, because you can't just make up resume items. But your candidate has a resume, and if you're actually running a realistic campaign, then their resume is going to be diverse enough. Uh, somebody who has a very, like, basically uninspiring or thin resume, you know, maybe, they're, maybe, you'll, maybe you will take their money and run their campaign, but you can't do much with them. Anybody who's really a realistic candidate is going to have a pretty juicy resume, but, and you don't want to present the entire resume, even in an experience-oriented campaign. You want to pick what goes in. So what, what you do here is you pick three different chunks of the resume, three different slices to emphasize, and then when you get a focus group, and focus groups can be expensive, um, but if you have the financial resources, what do you do, what does testing look like if you don't have focus groups? Well, in this case, testing looks more like essentially rent-free focus grouping. What you do is you try to find people to talk to who don't need to be paid to talk to them. Uh, and what you could do is you could, you know, the, the most natural group of people to use are the volunteers, but they're, they're already kind of, you know, they're volunteering their time, so uh, they're, they're, they're beneficial because they're close at hand, but they don't, aren't necessarily the, the, the greatest group of people. What you can do is you can talk to your friends. You can talk to, uh, just, you know, find some groups of people to talk to. Um, you're like, oh yeah, I'm running the campaign for, for Jack Miller, he's running for Gresham. You know, he, he's, he, he is a deeply experienced educator. He understands how to analyze problems and how to talk about them and how to take multiple perspectives and how to connect with people. Uh, he's an experienced educator. Um, and then you, that's one of our versions, right? And a different version is, oh, he's, he's an experienced parent. Like, he's, he has teenagers. Uh, he's raised kids. That's a relevant experience. Uh, and, like, I have a relatively thin resume, so drawing on me as a potential candidate is, is never gonna produce too many, terribly many messages. Um, but, uh, you know, let's say that I was a realistic candidate. I had, you know, experience on nonprofit boards and doing grassroots organizing uh, and uh, being involved in the community. I don't have any of that stuff. But let's say I did. So it would be great to be able to actually convene official focus groups 
and you know, essentially play them a three 30 second radio ads, each with the different approach, and discuss with them, and you don't do this as the campaign manager, I mean, if, if, if you have focus group skills, you can save some money doing this, but you hire professionals to do this, and they glean from the focus group which approach to the overall story of the campaign and approach of the campaign seems to work the best. Now, part of the art of, of focus groups is that unlike polling, where you want as random a sample and as representative a sample of likely voters as you possibly can get, focus groups are focused on the people you want to be speaking to. You don't need to include in your focus group a representative cross-section of the likely voters because some of those people are going to be people who are definitely voting for the other candidate and you don't need to waste your time hearing that they don't like your message. You don't need to waste your time finding out that, you know, like, oh yeah, that's, that's a really interesting ad. I'm still voting for Bob because I have known Bob forever uh, or I just, you know, he's the incumbent, whatever it happens to be. Focus groups, you put in them heavy on the groups of people that you're going to be trying to speak to. Um, the soft supporters, the undecideds, the, whichever subgroup of those uh, of, of the demographics that you are targeting, right? Uh, people who own median or above priced housing, houses in uh, not renters but owners, and college educated women. You're going to have a heavily biased group. And it's not biased in the sense that they have a prejudice, it's biased in the direction that you're looking. And this is when you'll find out from real people. Now, focus groups is focus grouping and testing in, in an informal way is an art because it, you, you know it's it's all qualitative research. It's not quantitative. You can't you know you can't measure it. Uh, you can ask people in focus groups to say, oh, how did you feel about that radio ad on a scale of one to ten? You can get some numerical things out of them, but because it's not a cross a representative cross section of the electorate, it's not going to tell you anything scientific. There's there's an art to, to gleaning from. Uh, a focus group or even just testing around the world, you know, like talking to people just in general, talking to your, to your volunteers, to, to be able to know like, okay, which of these messages works best. Um, once you've done that, once you've essentially taken your multiple drafts of, a, of what's, your store, what's your messaging gonna look like, turned it into three different actual sort of quasi-operationalized versions. Like you don't need a truly polished radio ad, you don't need a truly polished email or speech or whatever it is that you're gonna show to, this, to, this, to these groups, um, you, you want a kind of a quickly operationalized version of what your initial research tells you and you, that fits each draft, then it's gonna narrow you down a direction. And this is when you now move to honing the message. Um, you're like, okay, what we found is that the professor version of experience, the lifelong educator, right? He's been a college professor for 25 years. He's worked at all these different schools. He is a professor at PSU right now. Uh, he teaches this, this stuff. That message works with the group of people that are gonna decide this election. Um, and uh, how do we then turn this into stuff? Well, what are you doing? When you're honing the message, essentially what you're doing here is actually creating campaign materials. Uh, I'll get my clipboard out here and look at the list. You're going you're gonna to actually then write ads. And some of the stuff that you did for the focus group will you know, be useful material, and then you will just do finalized drafts of those ads. You're going to write emails. 
because hopefully one of the things that you have is access to email lists and you're going to be sending out emails to potential supporters. Um, you're also going to be sending out emails to potential uh, endorsers uh, and it, uh, um, any group that might be willing to give you money or other resources like volunteer uh, energy. Uh, you're going to be producing talking points for the candidate and for the can campaign surrogates, for the campaign manager and anybody who might speak to a group of voters or a group of endorsers or the media in any way, they need their talking points, right? Um, and uh, that you also need your elevator pitch, which is the quick 30 second version of why it is that my candidate or ballot measure uh, is the thing that you should be voting for. Um, you also need more specified pitches, and this is where you kind of take the emails and the talking points and the elevator pitch kind of go in a specific direction. Like we're gonna send out emails to uh, all these environmental uh, interest groups. What is our endorsement pitch gonna look like to them, right? Uh, we're gonna send out emails to uh, um, you know, uh, student groups because some students live here. I, I'm not, now I'm just winging it because I don't really have any information. I'm mixing my examples, but you get the idea. Um, and then the final thing that you have to do is you have to write a speech or speeches. Uh, the basic thing that you must produce for every campaign is a stump speech. Uh, it's something that the candidate says over and over to all the different groups. It simplifies the candidate's task. It also makes sure there's a cohesive, memorable message. Repetition of the messages has been demonstrated by countless researchers, psychological researchers, to be the most effective way to get people to actually behave the way you want them to, which in this case, you want them to behave by writing your name in the ballot or putting the, tapping the screen or circling the, 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 the bubble, whatever it is. You want that behavior. That's the goal of a campaign is to shape behavior. Repetition, cohesiveness has definitely been shown to succeed at that. So, honing the message, and honing the message may not necessarily mean writing like the perfect email. It might mean writing five different emails. It might not mean running the perfect ad. It might mean running three, writing three different radio ads for three different radio markets. Um, and part of honing the message is actually done in conjunction. Like these two stages are really kind of, they're done at the same time. I've, I've, I've uh, separated them out of separate stages because they really do have a different orientation. Um, Game plan is this. One, how are different audiences going to be reached? Right? We need to reach college-educated uh, women. We're going to reach them through radio. Are we going to reach them through Facebook? Are we going to reach them by knocking doors? Are we going to reach them by speaking to certain uh, um, civic groups? How do we get to these people? This is where your initial research uh, hopefully will tell you, like, okay, here's, here are the places that we can go to reach these voters. Right? The, the League of Women Voters, and this is where you don't even need initial polling, you need research and connections. Oh, the League of Women Voters has candidate forums, or they have, uh, they have a, um, a, a webpage that puts up information about all of the different, the different people, and then they'll endorse. We're going to want to send an email, or even have a phone call from the candidate. How are the different audiences going to be reached? Where, like, what kind of speaking engagements are you going? Are you going to do? What, where are you going to do Facebook ads? Are you going to uh, do sponsored uh, Instagram posts? Probably not sponsored Instagram posts in, in this particular kind of race. But how are you going to reach them? Um, what messaging will each group get? Now, there's this is where honing the message. You want to be honing specific messages, but you also need to be keeping things cohesive uh, and coherent and all in the same direction. This is why sort of the elevator pitch. And the talking points are really a useful part of honing the message because uh, that will be the sort of thing you have to come back to. Even when you're sending out different emails 
or different speeches to different groups or different talking points, specific talking points for different endorsement pitches. But if you're sitting down to talk to the League of Conservation Voters, you're going to have a different set of talking points for your candidate than if they're sitting down with the editorial board of the Willamette Week and the Oregonian for those newspapers to decide on their endorsements. But the overall campaign talking points and the overall elevator pitch are going to provide uh, the uh, sort of uh, direction for these more detailed honing of the messages. Now, clearly, this is also going to, when we're doing this evaluating stage, honing the message is going to be happening throughout the campaign. This is definitely not a one-time thing. You may never do focus groups again. You'll never do initial polling again because it won't be initial. It'll be now uh, evaluative polling uh, as you move forward if you have the um, uh, resource for it. Hopefully, you're never going to have to go back to the brainstorming phase because you didn't like essentially start communicating and realize that everything is a dud and you just went in the wrong direction and you have to go back to the drawing board. Hopefully, you don't have to do that. But you will absolutely have to hone the message continuously um, and even just, you know, uh, the, even if the stump speech is solid, uh, it, altering a couple of phrases, maybe altering the order, changing the opening anecdote that humanizes the uh, candidate, that could be a beneficial thing. So this is going to be, it's super important to do a lot of this as early as possible, but this is going to be part of the whole hustle of the last few weeks of the campaign. Uh, and uh, the final part of the game plan is, how will this be scheduled and carried out? This is crucial, and this is where uh, you've probably heard, and I, I know that in the first couple of guest lectures, the word spreadsheet got used an awful lot. And this is, this is the part of campaign, I'm just like, oh, I don't wanna have spreadsheets, I hate the spreadsheet part. I like, this is, my favorite part is, is, is these three stages of developing strategy. Even in the honing part, like, oh, then you have to actually write the final email that's gonna go out. Like, I, I do a podcast, and I, and I write a weekly, I have an email list, and I write a weekly email when each of my episodes comes out, and that is the most obnoxious task for me. I hate doing it. I know it's important. I know that, that, that I want to say something about the episode or about the podcast in general that's going to get people who see that email to say, oh, I want to listen to that episode, um, or I want to subscribe to that podcast. But for me, I'm like, oh, I hate that part. I loved conceiving of it. I love coming up with it. I love all the other stuff, but that part. So hopefully you have, you have people on, uh, uh, with you who are good at all of these different skills. And getting people to specialize is actually part of the art of uh, running a campaign. But how are you going to schedule and carry out all of the different messaging? And this is where certain parts of the schedule are just given, right? And this is where the spreadsheet is necessary. The editorial board of the Willamette Week is going to meet with candidates during this time frame, and you need to get an appointment with them. Um, the voter pamphlet deadline for submission is, is this point, and so uh, you can't get endorsements into the voter pamphlet after this time, so you need to, you need to work backwards from there and schedule you all of your, as many of your endorsement meetings as possible so you can get your endorsements. And, okay, well, we have this whole week here in the, in the campaign is going to be the candidate spending half the day on the phone trying to get money and half the day uh, uh, either on the phone with or, or Zoom meeting with or actually physically meeting in a different world than we live in right now, uh, endorsement groups. And so that whole week is shot with that. And basically what that means is that we need to, at, at least the week before, if not two weeks before, we need to have the endorsement pitch talking points ready to go and so that when uh, it's the 15-minute drive to the place where you're going to be meeting with the conservation voters or with the, you know, Gresham Development Board or the Chamber of Commerce, whoever it happens to be, that 
instead of being like, oh no, what are we, how do, what do we talk about? Shit, it's 15 minutes until we're there. What, what are we supposed to say? That that's already done. Those talking points, that information, uh, the essentially the overall uh, approach, what are we gonna say to these people? Um, all of that needs to be back scheduled. And so the, the game plan is partly about messaging and then partly just about mechanics of that messaging. But what a campaign is, is a campaign is nonstop communicating for however many weeks or months, and that communicating is gonna happen through various avenues. It's gonna happen through ads, it's gonna happen through people who are passing out leaflets or, or knocking doors, it's gonna happen through candidate interface with voters, endorsement groups, uh, um, uh, that's, that's basically it, voters and endorsement groups. Um, <clears throat> and it's, you can't, you're not gonna be able to fit everything in that you want, and some of those things require the candidate's time, like a personal appearance. Other of those things don't, like, uh, advertisements, but they require money, which may require the candidate to spend time on the phone getting the money that's going to pay for that particular ad. Um, it may require um, lots of people knocking doors. Before you send people out to knock doors, you need uh, a flyer. Oh, actually, that's I, I forgot to add to my list of, I'm going to put that on my list because I'm going to take a picture of this and make it um, flyers and uh, lawn signs because you're going to need time to print that stuff up. You're gonna to need to make sure that it's been uh, crafted, honed, proofed, printed, and gotten into the hands of the field director so that they can get into the hands of people who are gonna go knock doors. So uh, all of these aspects are really important, but then the game plan, like okay, when are we gonna send people out? When are they gonna start knocking doors? When are we gonna be uh, using our activist energy instead to be uh, generating more activist energy? And when are we gonna be, be using activist energy to be generating votes? Uh, so, again, always keeping in mind that there are several different audiences for this messaging. Uh, and I've already talked about that, I think, at length enough to, so that I don't have to go back over it again. But that's the process, right? And essentially what you're doing is you're going from general to specific. You're going from uh, sort of the unknown to the known in both of those. So from general to specific and from the unknown to the known. Starting with the most general, like what is the voice of the campaign? That's a, that's a very abstract concept. Down to then, what does the flyer look like? What does the email uh, look like? What are, what's the elevator pitch when, you know, when somebody finds out that you work for Jack Miller, who's running for Gresham City Council, you have to, everybody on the campaign needs to be able to spout the 30 second elevator pitch just pretty, pretty automatically, very specific. Um, how do you get what that elevator pitch is? Like, what do you say in 30 seconds? Do you talk about the fact that he's an experienced educator? Do you talk about the fact that he's, that he's a caring parent? Do you talk about the fact that his issues are cleaning up the parks and parking? What do you talk about in that 30 seconds? To get that specific, and then very, very specific with the game plan, like spreadsheeted out and scheduled out um, and targeted, uh, you, have to get, you have to go from the generalities to the more specifics. Um, I will take a picture of these notes and add it to the picture of the board that I put up uh, on the site. Uh, that's it, that's developing uh, a strategy. <laughs> I had to look at the title to know what it was. And next week we're gonna take the next step which is then communicating, which is really, that's the, that's the campaigning. That for some people that's the fun part, right? That's the getting out there and meeting voters and holding rallies and knocking doors and you know, producing uh, radio and television ads and getting Facebook ads out there. For some people, that's the super fun part. And that, that there is a lot of high adrenaline to that. The game plan is crucial. 
because the game is going to change and you're going to have to update your game plan while you're communicating and that's part of what I'll talk about next time. But uh, you, you can't enter the game without a game plan. You need something to be able to adapt. You need things that you can then evaluate. Uh, you can't just make it up on the fly. A campaign is very much a structured, organized attack. Uh, you can't just send, say the army, go to Russia, right? And attack and kill it, right? Uh, you have to say, like, okay, here's how we're gonna do it. Here's how we're gonna march. Here's how we're gonna feed you. Here's how we're gonna make sure that there's enough horses to drag the guns and all this stuff. This is a kind of a Napoleon reference, by the way, uh, in case you were wondering. But a campaign, a military campaign and a political campaign share <clears throat> that aspect. They share it with a football game as well. An NFL, successful NFL team is gonna have a game plan and they're gonna be prepared to dynamically update that game plan in the game. So next time we get to communication. Until then, uh, stay sane, stay healthy, stay all the things that keep you as a whole and wonderful person. All right, bye.